0: Well, Good morning to you, Maranatha! Oh, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible. Children, you're dismissed to the Our pianist—he's in pain, but he's doing better. So So anyway, good morning to you, and Maranatha, our Lord, Lord comes. You know, as I was sitting here listening to that song, Jesus is Lord of All, I couldn't help but think that one of the things that we teach and preach and declare here at St. Louis Bible Fellowship is uh, not Lordship Salvation. That we do not teach that in order for you to be saved, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. The reason we don't teach and preach that is because we believe Jesus is the Lord. You don't make him anything, he is. And by faith, you accept that. But there's a lot of folks that they'll say, until you make Jesus Lord, well, I've got news for them. He is Lord of Lords, he is the Savior. And it's by faith we accept that he is that, not you make him that. Uh, He's in charge. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful for that. And I love that song, that he is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. And we can safely trust in him. Well, this morning I want us to continue with our study of Christ of the Book. Believe it or not, we are going to cover six books today. Six books. Books. Now, really, three of them, and I say that because First and Second Samuel, as we found out last week, is only one book, right? First and Second Kings are really one book. First and Second Chronicles is one book. So we're going to look at three three books uh, this morning, but we're going to do it in a a little bit different manner uh, as as we delve into into this this truth. Is we're going to understand that in the book of Samuel as we talk about Christ is, in the volume of the book it's written of me from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the living word. And in Samuel he both books of Samuel he is faithful proclaimer. We talked about that last week. He is the faithful proclaimer with Samuel being a type of Christ. Not being afraid to say thus saith the Lord. Uh, in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, he is sovereign ruler. With David uh, being a type of Christ, Second uh, Samuel uh, and and First Kings talking about that that sacred ruler uh, that is Christ Jesus. And the thing that Israel so desperately needed was a godly king to direct them and to guide them. And we're going to be talking about what all took place during the historical period from 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. We're going to be looking at that 700-year period of time. You say, no, you're never going to get through that much time. Oh, yeah, we are. And we're going to talk about a little over 700 years of time that, that went by with the faithful proclaimer and the need for a... For a sovereign, sovereign ruler. Uh, remember this, that from 2 Samuel to 2 Kings covers the exact amount of time, or the same amount of time, and the same characters as First and Second Chronicles. So when you look at 1, 2 Samuel and you go all the way to 2 Kings, and then you flip over to First and Second Chronicles. It covers the exact same period of time. Kings covers it from a political standpoint. Chronicles covers it from a priestly, uh, spiritual standpoint. And the same stories, same characters, but a different detail, uh, varying in each one of those, uh, each one of those books. But from a priestly perspective and from a political perspective. Uh, but throughout all of those, we see that Jesus Christ is the ultimate righteous King that Israel is in such need for, that the world is in such need of, and all the promises to all the prophets that that they prophets made, uh, they speak during this time, ministering during this time, warning and exhorting and promising. You know, in Isaiah and Jeremiah they they speak on the subject of the coming messiah and the promises and the glories and the blessings that he brings this jesus of nazareth being the one that the gospels proclaim so isaiah is at the beginning of of the kings of of, of israel Uh, The divided nation. Jeremiah is there at the end. You have a prophet that begins and you have a prophet that ends and their promises their warnings uh, unfortunately go unheeded during that whole time. Daniel and Ezekiel these two prophets uh, they speak and prophesy pretty much after Israel has gone into captivity warning and talking about something very interesting called the Day of the Lord. Now, what we want to do in this study is we absolutely want to show that Christ is the living Word, that He is the focus, He is the theme of the Scripture uh, from, from beginning to end. Actually, if, if you wanted to re- rename 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles and you wanted to find Christ of the book, You could just name him the rejected one because that's exactly what's happening as Israel rejects their king. As a matter of fact, in in the Gospels, when Christ is talking about uh, the relationship with Israel, he gives them the parable that talks about the fact that a a ruler came and the, the people did not accept that ruler. And they basically said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And the, the Lord Jesus was back and saying that they refused to believe the truth of God's word. And that's the primary purpose of, that, of this study. But there's also a secondary that I want to make sure we don't miss. And that secondary is to show that in spite of all the blessings... In spite of all the promises, in spite of all the miracles and wonders and the word of God going forth, that Israel continued, continued to reject the words of God. They continued to choose other gods rather than the true and living God himself. I have a confession as i study and prepare for for this study the depth of the truth that i am trying to convey tend to be overwhelming and and i just i feel inadequate to break down what i think is the truth of of this study especially through these historical time when we talk about the, the kings and, and, and the people of Israel and their rejection of the prophets and the rejection of, of God himself, uh, there is so much going on. There's so much more than, than just Bible stories that we teach our kids. It's, not, it's more than just David and Goliath. It's more than Elijah before Ahab. It's more than Jehoshaphat and, and the miracles that God's working in these different, these different kings. As, as we study what's going on during this time, as we see Israel, who has been blessed beyond measure, as we see God's chosen people being given the word of God, and they continually reject it and choose other gods, over the true and living God. This, this historical account really highlights God's mercy. It highlights God's suffering. But it also, this study will highlight, the fallen condition of man. And as we go through this, I, there are two attributes of God I, I want us to remember. As, as we look at this part, portion of Scripture, one is is God's amazing grace. He has to be a gracious, loving, long-suffering God in order to put up with these people or these people. You know what I mean? But also the other thing is God's a jealous God. Yes, He's a gracious God, but He is a jealous God. And the sin that He continued to... Uh, Uh, that Israel continued to commit was the sin of breaking the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They never really got past the first one without irritating God. That was the big sin, was idolatry. They continued to go after strange gods. When given the choice, they would go after the strange gods. Those gods that appeal to the flesh. Those gods that false gods of stone and tree. And see, he, he understands that those gods, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't answer, they can't bless. So it makes you scratch your head and go, they had all the blessings from the true God. They had the word from the true God. They had the warnings from the prophets. They had demonstration after demonstration of the power of the God who loves them. But the Scripture says they would then go a-whoring after those other gods. And I thought about that. Imagine, men, I want you to imagine with me this morning, if you had a beautiful wife like I do. You had a beautiful wife. And your desire was to lavish her with love and affection. You desired nothing more than to demonstrate your love in countless ways. You just wanted to love on her. You just wanted to show her how much you cared. Yet she constantly chose chooses to go after strange lovers that's Israel that's what's going on here and those lovers want nothing but her destruction that's what's happening with Israel here matter of fact the whole book of Hosea when Hosea is instructed I want you to marry Gomer who was Gomer she was a prostitute And God told Hosea, Mary Gomer, because this is the perfect example of what Israel is doing during this period of time. Look at Hosea, chapter 2, look at Hosea, chapter 2. what's going on with Israel from 2 Samuel all the way through 2 Chronicles. And Hosea is writing to the northern kingdom. Hosea, he's one of the first prophets. He fits in there early in the uh, 1 Kings. Verse 5, Hosea 2. For their mother hath played the harlot she hath received them that have done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and milk." Drop down to verse eight. This is God speaking, and he says, "For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil." and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Isn't that sad? That, that is so descriptive of what's going on. Israel is the wife of God. God compares Israel to his special wife. And in, in, look at Isaiah. Isaiah. He was prophesying to the southern kingdom. Look at Isaiah. Fifty-two, I think. Fifty-four. Look at Isaiah 54. Verse 5. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he, he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou was refused, saith thy God. No one else wanted you, but I wanted you. I loved you. I cared for you. I want to bless you. But this here, this period of history, it just shows Israel, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom after the division came and the southern kingdom after the division came, all choosing especially the northern kingdom, they had 19 kings. 19 kings in the northern kingdom. Do you know how many of those kings the Bible says were good kings? Let me give you a hint. There weren't any. Well, then after the division and Jeroboam started out as the king, and remember the reason God divided the kingdom? And it's all talked about in, in, in 2 Samuel and 1 2 Kings and 1 2 Chronicles. That whole historical period, the reason that the division came to begin with is because Solomon didn't do what he should have done. You know, we talked about Saul, we talked about David, and then you have Solomon. And Solomon got so steeped in the worship of false gods. And that's because of all the women that he went after. He let them steer him, let him direct. That was not pleasing to God at all. And God said, I am going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to take all of it away from David's seat, from David's throne, except for one part, and that's Judah, one tribe. And he goes to Jeroboam and he says, Jeroboam, I will make you a great king if you will be faithful to me. He sends his prophet there. Sends his prophet to go. And he says, Jeroboam, if you'll believe, if you'll serve me, then I will make you a great king. I make you and your, your people, I mean, they were Jewish, but your sons, I'll make them a line. And I will bless it. That's from a prophet. Guess what Jeroboam said? Nah. Nah. Not sure how to spell nah, but it was No. As a matter of fact, Jeroboam did so evil, that he was afraid that if the temple worship, or if, if, if the tabernacle worship started in Jerusalem with well, all the people in the north would go down to, there to worship, and, and then they will give the throne back to David's lineage and his sons. Uh, so let's, let's build another place for worship. And so Jeroboam built two golden calves. Two golden calves. Sort of reminds you of what Aaron did coming out of Egypt, huh? What think, What do you think put that idea in his head? Same one that put it in Aaron's head. I believe that was Satan himself. And so they they. Jeroboam said, we're going to build these two, calves, these two golden calves, and you come to where we're going to set up another tabernacle. We're going to put them in two different locations, and so you don't need to go down to Jerusalem. You can just stay up here and worship. We're going to have our own priest. Oh, by the way, they're not going to be from the tribe of Levi. Anybody who wants to be a priest can be a priest. And you, it, The Bible tells us that they were the lowest of the low. But that was okay. Shows you that it wasn't important. Shows you that he was just trying to placate the people, but he was not interested in serving God. He was the first king. Then there was a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a sixth all the way. Nineteen different kings in the, of the northern kingdom called Samaria. Every one of them did evil, did that which was evil in the sight of God. You know what that indicates? They went after strange gods. They went and worshipped strange gods. Rather than the true and living God, they chose to worship the gods that that appealed to their sexual baseness, their perversion. That was more important to them than the true and living God. Until they were carried into Assyrian captivity. The first prophet the first prophet that we have a, a book about is named Jonah. And we're going to get to Jonah here, not today, but we'll get to Jonah eventually. And Jonah, didn't, he didn't prophesy to Israel. He didn't preach to Israel. He didn't go there and say to the northern kingdom, Hey, you guys better straighten up and fly right. You better cut this nonsense out. He didn't go to Israel. Jonah went to Assyria. And why did he go to Assyria? He went to Assyria to warn them to repent because they were going to be God's sword against Israel. God was going to use Assyria as the sword of judgment against Israel because of their sin and degradation and not obeying God. That's the reason Jonah flee did flee. It wasn't because Jonah was afraid of preaching. It's because Jonah understood, God, you are a merciful God. And if I go to them, if I go to Assyria, they're going to to repent. And you're going to use them to haul Israel off into captivity. And sure enough, that's what happened. Jonah tried to flee, but we'll talk more about Jonah when we get there. But he was the first prophet that went and, and proclaimed the truth of God's word. These Gentiles, Gen- uh, Assyria, there in Nineveh, they repented. Of course, it helped that Noah—I mean, uh, Jonah—showed up after being swallowed by a whale, and probably was all bleached out, and and the story probably had gone out, and it was pretty startling to them. But they repented. They trusted. They believed. So God used. Jonah to get Assyria right, so that Syria, a Gentile nation, could whip Israel into shape. problem is Israel was taken into captivity, and they never returned. That's when the Jews hated the Sumerians because when they the, the Northern Kingdom went into captivity, and the cap and the, what uh, what they did is they sent the the Assyrians sent people into Israel, brought Israel in there, and they were going to mix them and match them. And the, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they said, well, you're, you're half and half. That's the reason, and that animosity continued all the way up until the time of Christ. All of this was going on during this period of time when God and his word was being poured out by his prophets and warning and telling them, here's what's going to happen. When you read, and and some of you've come to me and said, I can't believe all the stuff that I'm reading about that's going on. Why, David wasn't that faithful. And his sons? And all the the stuff that was going on, you read it, and it's kind of embarrassing, actually. What we have to remember is during these historical accounts, as all of these kings and how evil they were and the things that they were doing and and their compromises and their attachments to false gods, all of these things that are being uh, detailed, The reason for that is so that we can take these prophets and we can stick the prophets there where they belong and we see God calling them, God pleading with them, God sharing His word, telling them to repent, telling them that the day of the Lord was going to to come. Despite the warnings, despite the warnings, despite the promises of blessings, they continued to reject. That's why I say he could be called the rejected one. Makes no sense to me. But they did. But his rejection was prophesied. Even his rejection was prophesied that he was going, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to be as a lamb before the shearers dumb. That he was going to be despised and rejected of men. Even the prophets said, this is what you're going to do to your Messiah. The prophets talked about the day of the Lord. You talk about a warning. The prophets talked about the day of the Lord. Look at, look at Isaiah 13. Look at Isaiah 13. Look at verse 6. Howly for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. Drop down to verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. The day of the Lord is the tribulation period. The day of the Lord is the time of Jacob's trouble. The day of the Lord is that period of time that's described In the book of Revelation, every prophet, every prophet talked about the day of the Lord. That was a reason for Israel to get right with the Lord. uh, Isaiah, he prophesied it at the very beginning. Jeremiah prophesied it at the very end of that period of time, saying, you guys repent. Finally, you know what? It got so bad. You know what Jeremiah finally told the nation of Israel? Or actually, by this time, it was Judah. Just let it go. He told Judah, You're already so far down that path. God is already so angry. You go ahead and you submit to the Babylonian king. You go ahead and submit. Don't try to fight. And by this time, these kings, well, we're going to call on the name of the Lord. No, it's not going to do you much good. Because God's judgment is upon you. When we get to Isaiah, we're going to see that Christ of the The name Isaiah means Savior. In Isaiah, Christ is Jehovah who saves. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous shepherd. Both of those books, one at the beginning, the other at the end, depicts the need of Israel to trust the true God of heaven and not go running after false, false gods. Zephaniah. Where Zephaniah fits in is toward the end of Second Chronicles. Matter of fact, Zephaniah is one of the prophets called the 11th hour apostle. As it's getting closer and closer to that Babylonian captivity, Zephaniah stands up and and again talks about the day of the Lord and that that it's coming and they had better prepare for it. He called out to Judah, you need to prepare for the day of the Lord because what God did to Israel, the northern kingdom, He's about to do to you also, Judah. God's God's word, God's God's warning via his prophets, it went through this whole period of time, 700 years. God was relentless in his calling, in his begging, in his pleading as he reached out to these hard-hearted, wicked, stiff-necked nation that he loved. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. You want to know where Isaiah fits in? Just to kind of show you what we're talking about. Because again, it's so important that we understand where these prophets fit in with all of these other details about these kings and things that are happening that was going on. Uh, you read these things and you scratch your head and you go, Where was God during this? Where was God when, when Absalom was killing his brother who had raped his sister? And, uh, there's just so much stuff. You wonder, where is God during this time? Well, we know from the prophets where God is. And he was saying, "No, no, no." And he was calling them back, but they kept saying, "No, no, no.' going to believe. But look at Isaiah chapter one. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amoz, when he saw concerning which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Well, right there tells you where Isaiah fits in. So, what do you want to do? You want to go over here to um, look at Second Kings 15. Look at Second Kings 15. And in the twenty and seventh year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, remember he's the bad king that said, uh, "We're going to use, uh, we're not going to use the priest of God. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to start our own priesthood. Big no-no. We're not going to send people to worship at the true tabernacle. We're going to, we're going to come up with our own golden calves to worship." So, in the twenty seventh year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began uh, Uzziah or uh, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. And then you go from, from 2 Kings 15, 16, 17. It talks about these other kings that Isaiah said were kings when I was prophesying. And you want to know what it was being said during that time, you go and you study the book of Isaiah. And remember, the Christ in the book of Isaiah is Savior. Jehovah our Savior. That's what the name Isaiah means. It's the same with, with Jeremiah. The, the, the scripture in, in, in Jeremiah, uh, 2 Kings 22, talks about uh, uh, Josiah, when, when Josiah began to reign. That was Jeremiah that came in and was his, uh, his mentor. If you go to Lamentations, what's Lamentations all about? Lamentations is about Jeremiah just crying out to God. Because Judah was a whoring after strange gods. Maybe you say, "I don't. I'm not comfortable with that word. I don't know any other word to call it." Because that pretty much sums it up. That's what Judah was doing. And Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations. What does the word Lamentations mean? It means weeping, crying. Why was he weeping? Why was he crying? It's because he saw what was happening to Judah. 2 Kings 25. Where, where does it talk about that? Second, look at 2 Kings 25. Verse 1 and it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month of. The tenth day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and they built forts against it and round about. That's exactly what Lamentations is talking about when Jeremiah starts crying out. So again, as you read all of that, reading First Samuel and parts of 2 Samuel, as you, as you read 1 Samuel and all the stuff that David was going through, Go in and read, bring so many of the Psalms, the Davidic Psalm. The Psalm that we had today was written by David during the time that he was a king. He these so many of the Psalms are Davidic Psalms of times when he was praising God, when he was crying out for God. You read 1 Samuel and you see all the activity that was going out. Well, what was the heart of David during that time? You go to the Psalms. What about when Solomon was was? king. At the very beginning, when Solomon, all of these different activities were happening with Solomon. And you want to know, what was Solomon thinking after God made him the wisest man to ever live? What was Solomon thinking? Well, you go to Proverbs. It was a pretty sharp cookie. You go to Proverbs. That was God's word given to to Solomon during that time. Well, what was Solomon like toward the end of his reign when he got messed up with all those women, 700 wives and 300 concubines? That'll ruin anybody. He writes Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is about vanity, vanity. All is vanity. You read Ecclesiastes and it's all about helpless, hopelessness. It's all written from the natural man perspective. And it just pours, it just shows you what was going on and how God was dealing with with all of these men. And and Solomon in love with God at the very beginning, and the Song of Solomon that's, that's written, what a beautiful depiction of God's relationship with Israel, his wife, his bride. All through the scriptures. We get that. Elijah and Elisha, only two prophets that never wrote a book. Sixteen prophets wrote books. Elijah and Elisha never did, but boy, were they powerful. Boy, did they have an impact on the nation of Israel and Ahab, which is the first part of Kings. But Israel continued to reject God. And as you go through that and you see that rejection, you couple that with our Lord's parable where that country said, we will not have this man to reign over us. When you understand that the book of Malachi is called the prophet's seal and the promise that the Messiah was coming 400 years after Malachi was before John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of Christ coming and preaching and proclaiming that he's coming, he's coming. John the Baptist's whole purpose, his mission, was to turn the hearts and the men, the hearts of the men and women back to God. 400 years had transpired, and Israel heard no word from God. Then John the Baptist came on the scene, you was preparing the way for Christ. Preaching the baptism of repentance. Israel, you better repent. Israel, you better repent. Israel, your Messiah is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. You know why the kingdom was at hand? Because the Messiah was at hand. Christ Jesus himself. All of these Old Testament scriptures, all of these Old Testament prophets as they demonstrated the Messiah, who Christ is, they all pointed to that time when the Messiah would come. But when you think of Israel, by the time he came, they were under Roman captivity. They were under Roman authority. They were a nation, and they had Herod as a king, but he wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. He had been appointed by Rome, For all practical purposes, Israel really didn't exist except maybe in the hearts of some of the Jews. But they couldn't. It's not the Messiah they looked for. Not the Messiah they needed. Not the Messiah that the prophets promised. Look at Matthew 18. We're almost done. Matthew 18. Why did Christ come into the world? Matthew 18 verse 11 For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. That's neuter, not necessarily someone. Of course, we know that he came to save us, to redeem us. But the Holy Spirit doesn't misuse words. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So something was lost. Look at Luke 19. Folks, this really is important for us to understand rightly dividing the word of truth look at luke 19 verse 10 for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost so again it's something actually verse 11 and as they heard these things he added spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem because they thought that the kingdom of God should appear immediately. And said, Therefore a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this. What is our Lord talking about? He was talking about Israel and the conditions That existed, but Christ says, "I come only, or says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost." Look at Matthew fifteen. I think this is our explanation. Remember Israel and all the kings and the rejection and going after strange gods. Matthew 15, verse 24. Oh, you talk about God being a long-suffering God. You talk about Him being merciful and gracious. It's a good thing I'm not God. Because I wouldn't have put up with that stuff. I'd have zapped them a long time ago. But he answered and he said. I am not sent, but into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. When you take into consideration the history of Israel, every prophet, every prophet was martyred, was killed. Israel killed every prophet. There wasn't a prophet that came into Israel that they didn't kill. Including the Lord Jesus Himself, but I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. John four verse twenty two. Christ says, I've, "I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." John four twenty two says that salvation is of the Jews. Knowing Israel's history, how comfortable does that make you feel, Gentiles? Can you take rest and comfort in that? Salvations of the Jews, Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, Israel. They rejected the king. The ones that he came to are the ones who said, crucify him, crucify him. I can imagine Satan sat back going, I got this. Boy, I I have been messing with Israel all these years. I know exactly how to get them to follow me and not him. Why I'm going to put these strange gods, I'm going to, I'm going to cause them to, to follow after these strange gods. And when they said, crucify him, crucify him, he thought, I got it. I got it handled. Little did they know that God had a secret. God had a plan. You stop and think about the fact the salvation of the Jews. It don't look very promising. Matter of fact, it looks kind of frightening. In Acts chapter 2, we, we see that when Christ ascended, God the Father told God the Son, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. That sounds like subjection. That sounds like it's going to be rough days ahead. And they were going to be. The condition, look at Ephesians 2 real quick and we're done. I, but I think this will make it a little clearer of what I'm trying to point out. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Wherefore, remember you, talking to the Gentiles, you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, you Gentiles are called uncircumcision by the Jews in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, which Christ came to save, that which was lost, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Your condition, Gentile, if salvation was of the Jews and you look at their track record, where would that hope? But I say it again. God had a secret, a plan, a mystery that is the greatest mystery that has ever been forthcoming. God had a plan, and then as Satan was rubbing his hand and licking his chops and thinking, I got him right where I want him, heaven was smiling. The price was being paid, and before the foundation of the world, God had a plan and a program and a purpose in order to show forth His long suffering, that in the ages to come we might know the exceeding riches of His grace. That by this death, burial, and resurrection, that God was going to sal- offer salvation to Jew and Gentile alike, based on that finished work. On his amazing grace how could Israel be so foolish and continue to reject God does that make sense what dummies what idiots how foolish could they be so many miracles so many blessings well folks before we get too critical of them we need to examine our own households. Amen. The Cultural Research Center 2020 did a study. Are you sitting down? Good. Maybe I ought to. Only 6% of Americans have a Biblical worldview. Only 6%, of 94% of Americans don't have a worldview. Now, 75% claim to be Christian, but if you don't believe the Bible, what kind of Christian are you, right? 6% of Americans, only 6% of Americans have a Biblical worldview. 33% 33% of so-called Christians they they use the term born again we we know about that but born again Christians they're supposed to be yep we're we're Christians 19% of that 33% who claim to be born again only 19% have a biblical worldview Only 19% of those who really claim to know Christ as Savior believe that this is God's Word? Maybe we ought to apologize to Israel for thinking they're so foolish. You see how easy it is to be duped. That 19%, well, that 6% seems low of Americans. Do you know in 2011, there was another research done? 25% of Americans had a biblical worldview in 2011. 25% of Christians. 2013, 13%. It started slipping. But in 2017, 24%. There was a jump. In 2017, 24% of Americans have a biblical worldview. But you want to talk about slipping. And 2020, 6%. We're going the wrong direction, folks. We're going the wrong direction. You want to know why there's so many eels? There's so many difficulties. Do you know what the fastest growing religious uh, uh, segment is, a growing faith segment is in the United States today, they call themselves spiritual skeptics. I had never heard of spiritual skeptics. I can barely say skeptic. 21% of Americans claim to be spiritual skeptics. Of that 21%, one half of one percent, and I even find that surprising, believe that in a biblical worldview. But folks, the slide is on. And the churches are sitting back going, okay, that's, that's all right with us. They're not taking the stand. Matter of fact, the spiritual skeptics, they are thought of as being the intelligent their position being open-minded, and the world is just embracing them as if they've got good sense. Well, I don't doubt that they're open-minded because their brains have spilled out. And they're absolutely foolish. It's time for the church to get serious. And when I say the church, I mean the body of Christ. To get serious about our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's important that we get serious about our stand for God's word. And be ready to give an answer to any man that asks us of the hope. Israel refused to believe God's word. And he came into his own, and his own received him not. And just as surely as He came the first time, He's coming again. And my question to you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready for that? The only way to get ready is by faith, believing that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. We serve Almighty God. He and He alone is worthy of our praise and our worship, our adoration, and our service. And if you want to know Him, there's only... One way to know Him, and that's through Christ, who is the living Word and also know the written Word, because He's the author. Know Him. Let's pray. Father, come before You this morning, and how we thank You for Your Word and how true it is. We thank You for the history. We thank You for what we read and we see. And Father, the solutions were always there. You are the solution. Father, we read and we examine what the prophets not just prophesied and foretold, but Father warned about. Yet they turned an unbelieving eye and ear. Having eyes they didn't see, having ears they didn't hear. Father, made the church not fall into that category but I'm so afraid we are Father when you come may you find us faithful and find us serving and I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Savior that this will be the day that by faith they'll trust you and we pray all these things in Christ holy and most precious name Amen.